the very best thing that ever happened to me at Whitworth, and I think I mean that, is that on the class period before Thanksgiving, um, where so many of the students just skip class, I walk in and there are like three people in there. And I was like, this is so dispiriting. I was a new teacher at Whitworth. It was my first year. And I was just kind of discouraged. And right about that time, the whole class walked in, men and women, males and females, all of them wearing sweaters and a tie. <laughs> and it was, made me so happy. So thank you. Let's begin with prayer. Our God, we need you to be present with us. We need you to illuminate our minds. We need you to refresh our spirits. We pray that you would lead us into a deeper awareness of your love for us, your grace towards us, and your call on our lives. Please equip us to be pastors and Christians who bear witness to the love of God in all that we do and in all that we say, and in who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the topic for this talk is sanctification, the doctrine of the Christian life. And as you know, Christian theologians disagree about all sorts of things related to the Christian life. But despite all the differences, nearly all of them think about sanctification as a gradual process of intrinsic growth in which believers become more and more holy people. About that, there is very little disagreement. It does not matter if you're Orthodox or if you're Roman Catholic, if you're Wesleyan or Presbyterian, you think progress in the Christian life means that a person becomes in herself or himself more and more virtuous. This is nearly the unanimous Christian position. And today, with Bart's help, I'm going, to, this will not surprise you, I'm going to argue against that view. And I want to be clear right from the beginning that I am not arguing against progress per se in the Christian life. I'm arguing against a particular understanding of the meaning of progress, namely the idea that progress in the Christian life means an increase of virtue or holiness or whatever you want to call it within a person within an individual. I'm arguing against the idea that growth in the Christian life, and I want to just repeat what I just said, but it's important to get clear, means that people become more and more intrinsically holy. So Bart's view is a minority position within the church most Christian traditions and theologians do not agree with it. But again, don't let that scare you. As with his doctrine of reconciliation, in addition to being the minority view, it happens also to be better than the mainstream view. 
So the talk has two goals. I want to criticize the traditional view, and I want to argue for an alternative way of thinking about sanctification. And to illustrate the traditional position, I'm going to use John Calvin, which I hope makes you happy. <laughs> I've chosen Calvin for two reasons. The first is that his view is exceptionally clear, as you would expect from Calvin. And the second is that, and this is important to notice, there is an aspect of Calvin's doctrine of justification that you need to understand if you're going to understand Karl Barth's doctrine of sanctification. Shall I say that again? There is an aspect of Calvin's doctrine of justification, which I'm going to talk about, and I'm also going to talk about Calvin's doctrine of sanctification. There's an aspect of Calvin's doctrine of justification that you have to understand if you're going to be able to understand Karl Barth's doctrine of sanctification. So, justification. According to Calvin, when a person comes to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit joins that person to Christ in an unbreakable union. This is an indestructible bond. And that is really great because once you're united to Jesus, you receive what Calvin called a double grace, a duplex gratia, the grace of justification and sanctification. This is how Calvin thinks about the relationship between union with Christ on the one hand and justification and sanctification on the other. Justification and sanctification are, he says, the double grace of our union with Christ. When you are united to Christ in faith, and here he's going to describe justification, Jesus Christ's, and this is the key phrase to pay attention to, Jesus Christ's alien righteousness is imputed to you. And the result is that you are considered righteous or right with God, not on the basis of your own righteousness, but on the basis of Jesus Christ's righteousness, which has been credited to you. I'm sure all of you have taught generations of 12-year-olds this doctrine of justification. I hope you are doing that anyways. In confirmation classes, this is what Presbyterians are supposed to think about justification. And it's on that basis, the, the crediting of Jesus Christ's alien righteousness to you, that you are acquitted of your own unrighteousness, that you're forgiven of all of your sins. And the crucial thing to see is that the basis of this divine pronouncement of acquittal is not the believer's own internal righteousness. What is it? What's the basis of your acquittal? Jesus Christ's alien righteousness outside of you. 
God does not declare believers right or righteous on the basis of their own intrinsic worthiness. He declares believers righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ's own righteousness. So that, in a nutshell, is what Calvin thinks that justification is. But sanctification is not like justification. They always come together. Calvin says they're twins. But the nature of sanctification is different from the nature of justification, according to Calvin. Instead of being instantaneous and total, sanctification is gradual and partial. Unlike justification, it's not a once and for all declaration. It is an incremental process of growth in one's own holiness. So, whereas the righteousness that is imputed to the believer in justification is, I've been using the word alien, I'll use another word, extrinsic to the believer, outside of the believer, the holiness that is imparted to the believer in sanctification is intrinsic to the believer. And it's there in the context of sanctification that Calvin's view links up with everyone else's view. Because while the church to this day has serious and fundamental disagreements about the meaning of justification, once we get to the meaning of progress in the Christian life or sanctification, all roads converge. Because whatever you mean by justification and however you conceptualize sanctification... Everybody basically agrees that sanctification is a process in which believers become more and more holy, more and more intrinsically virtuous. And it's that view of progress that I am going to argue against. Now, I want, that's the most technical part of the lecture. It's all downhill from here. But if there's... Anything that's unclear about how I'm setting this up, please raise your hand and ask me, and I'll try to make it clear. Hell is, for me, the image of hell is, for me, up here, either boring or confusing people. So please don't, I mean, just suffer if you're bored. But if you're confused, <laughs> raise your hand and tell me what you want to know. Is anything unclear about what I've said so far? <laughs> All right, I'll take that as agreement. All right, as a way of setting up Bart's view, I want to make a few anecdotal observations about our culture that I think influence how we're inclined to understand the meaning of progress in the Christian life. As you know, American culture, maybe Western culture in general, is obsessed with celebrities. Celebrity-based media is a multi-billion dollar industry, and our appetite for information about the personal lives of athletes 
and movie stars and pop musicians, etc., is insatiable. We're constantly wanting more information about celebrities. We're constantly intrigued and fascinated by them. And interestingly enough, instead of resisting this, in my view, the church vigorously contributes to this problem. We do this in all sorts of ways, but one of the main ways that we do it is by creating a kind of copycat Christian celebrity culture. Um, What we do, I think, is we create a genre of elite Christians, super Christians, and what we do is we venerate these people. We lift them up as being a cut above the rest of us. Now, if you're Roman Catholic or Orthodox, uh, you have a name for these people, what do you call them? Saints. In, In my view, Protestantism is absolutely identical in terms of how it actually functions to Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy when it comes to the creation of an elite category of Christians that we lift up and venerate. Protestants do exactly the same thing as Catholics and Orthodox. We might not call our celebrities saints, but we are just as good at venerating them, uh, venerating these people that we think are especially holy. Now, this takes countless forms, but think for a moment about how often and about how we talk about really good pastors. Congregations that have excellent pastors are often very thankful for them. And so many of these people talk about their pastors in all sorts of hyperbolic ways. And and interestingly enough, pastors talk about other pastors in these ways. Now, obviously, good pastors know that this is happening, and they do everything that they can to resist that. They know that they're fallible. They know that they're sinful. They know that they are susceptible to blindness like everyone else. And so, in my view, what good pastors do, the ones that I'm most impressed with, are those pastors who intentionally undermine their own personal authority. Now, notice, they do not undermine their authority as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course not. They undermine their own personal authority, by which I mean the authority that they possessed just because of their own wisdom or maturity or goodness. And so when they speak, whether in preaching or evangelism or whatever, good pastors are not like our politicians, always highlighting their own virtues always broadcasting their excellences, always pointing to themselves as models of how everyone else should live. Good pastors are, in my opinion, like John the Baptist, forever pointing away from themselves to the person of Jesus Christ. And it's that sort of instinct. Now, I I get that this is not how um, many of us are trained to think of our vocations as pastors, Um, But I think it's something like this sensibility that led John Calvin to to ask to be buried in an unmarked grave. 
or that led Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, to say this about his role in the Reformation. Quote, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I didn't do anything. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Omsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. But even when our leaders do approach their work this way, that usually does not stop people from venerating them. Uh, I could mention all sorts of practical reasons why this instinct to elevate people to elite status is a bad thing, but I want to point out just two reasons. The first is that when we do this, it's bad for the people that we venerate. Because over time, these people begin to feel as though they have to live up to their reputations. And that urge to live up to what other people think you are, over time, takes a heavy toll on a lot of people. Over time, all the praise that people heap on them begins to become a burden for them. And they suffer under that burden because they know perfectly well that they are just flawed human beings, like everyone else is a flawed human being. They are not experts at Christian living because there is no such thing as that. These people know that they are subject to the same sorts of temptations and shallowness, laziness, and hypocrisy that everyone else is. And so they become acutely aware of the gap that exists between who they know they are and who other people think they are. And over time, this pressure often leads people to fake it in order to maintain or even perhaps to advance their own reputations. They learn, we all learn, to pretend to be people that we're not. And when this happens, a divide opens up within us, I think. It's a divide between the role that we play and our own self-understanding. I was trying to think of an analogy for this. It's kind of like the divide that opens up between how clever and funny mail call supposedly is <laughs> and, at least in my experience, how clever and funny it actually is. <laughs> Take that as a challenge, people. But as this divide grows in people, I see this um, occasionally, um, people begin to lose contact with themselves. The gap between their public persona, on the one hand, and their private self-understanding becomes a weight that they feel burdened by 
but it also has a way of diminishing them as human beings. It is possible for you to become confused about who you are or to forget who you are. But it seems to me that this division that opens up within people is a real problem. And it's related to these dynamics that I'm describing. I probably don't need, I mean, you probably know this full well. What was that? <laughs> Did any of you guys remember who Stuart Scott was? Who, who was he? ESPN anchor. Um, I one time read an article that there were more males in America who saw Stuart Scott's face every day. He was the face of Sports Center on ESPN than saw any other human being's face on earth. He's a super popular broadcaster. And he was known for having a kind of hip-hop, street sensibility. So like when, when someone would hit a home run in baseball, he's the guy who coined the term booyah. So it's just kind of this, like he hung out with rappers and he was super cool. Well, one time I'm with my friends Vito and Christian in Manhattan and we're on the subway and I look over and there's Stuart Scott and he's got a red t-shirt on and a giant gold medallion with a huge heavy chain. And he was having a conversation with this beautiful woman. And so if you were me and you were on the other side of the train, what would you have done? Well, I don't know what you would have done. I walked over closer and eavesdropped on their conversation. <laughs> just because that's what I felt like doing. That's what seemed to make the most sense. And I, after hearing all of these words on television from Stuart Scott, I mean, I'm one of these people who watch SportsCenter, see his face. Um, the very first word, in, words in person that I heard out of Stuart Scott's mouth were these. You have got to be kidding me. Bed, Bath & Beyond has way better accents than linens and things. <laughs> That's what I heard him say. And here I am thinking, there's a divide within this dude. I think all of us, um, to some extent, must feel this way. Some of you may even feel it profoundly. But the point just is that creating an elite set of Christians is bad for the people that we venerate. Now, here's the next point I want to make. It's also bad for the people doing the venerating. Because if you pay close attention, you see that venerating people is a very subtle and effective way of shielding ourselves from the the threat that their lives pose to our lives. The people we elevate may be tigers, so to speak, but by elevating them, by the very fact that we elevate them, we turn them into pussycats. Because now we encounter someone like Francis of Assisi, and we think to ourselves, well, well, Francis may have given away all of his possessions, but that's because he was a saint. He's, he's operating in a different league from me. 
That might be how they play in the major leagues, but down here in the minor leagues, 10% is fine. You see how that works? What we've done is we've seen the life of one of these people who does live an extraordinary life, and we insulate ourselves or protect ourselves from the challenge of their lives, and how do we do it? By elevating them. This is really sneaky, but it's effective. And it's harmful, I think. Now, all of this is obviously anecdotal. And I certainly don't want to say that you shouldn't have mentors or role models. One of the greatest blessings of life is to find a really good teacher. What I am saying, though, is that the instinct to venerate certain elite Christians is so deeply ingrained in us that when we start thinking about the Christian life, we just take it for granted that some Christians are more intrinsically holy than other Christians. I mean, what could be more obvious than that? And so to begin arguing against that idea, I want to start with a metaphor. Uh, it's not a metaphor that Bart himself used, at least not that I'm aware of, but it's a metaphor, I think, that illuminates what he's trying to say. The traditional model of sanctification thinks of holiness as something like liquid that fills a container. So just as a glass, for example, can be more full of liquid than another glass of the same size, one person can be more full of holiness than another person. This is the traditional way of thinking about it. The key thing to see is that the very idea that some people are intrinsically more holy than other people is just a given. It's just something that we take for granted. It's not something that we question. And so... When we say that a human being is holy, what we mean is something along the lines of God, who we know is holy, transferring holiness to people. However you conceptualize holiness, the assumption is that it's something disconnected from God that now belongs to the believer. It is, in other words, an effect that God causes in the holy person. God gives grace to the individual, and the individual is transformed into a more and more holy person. Now, that way of conceiving of sanctification is so obvious that it may be difficult for you even to imagine an alternative. Like, what would the alternative be? And here is where I think Bart is um, really helpful. He gives us different ways of thinking about a really important topic um, that are at least worth considering. The central thesis of Bart's position is that sanctification, like justification, is alien to the believer. In other words, is extrinsic to the believer, is outside of 
the believer. This is why I did this, uh, set this up by describing Calvin's position. Think about Calvin's position on justification. Believers are acquitted of sin and declared righteous, not on the basis of their own intrinsic righteousness, but, as I keep saying, on the basis of Jesus Christ's alien righteousness. Calvin learned to think that way from Luther. And Luther articulated this in the clearest possible way. Our, ju our justification, according to Luther, is the imputation of Christ's alien righteousness. Now, the question is, why would Luther ever think about it like that? Well, among other places, Luther learned to think about justification from 1 Corinthians 1.30. Um, this, if you're at all interested in Martin Luther's life, this is the verse that he quoted more than any other verse in all of his writings. 1 Corinthians 1.30. This is how it reads. God is the source of your life in Jesus Christ, whom God made to be our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want to just point out to you that this verse says, as Luther reads it, as we all hear it, that Jesus Christ is himself our righteousness. If it, by the way, this is, parenthetically, if any of you have ever read Bonhoeffer's uh, book, Discipleship, you know just how important this verse and this thought functions within the whole argument. But for our purposes, what's interesting about this verse is that it also clearly says that Jesus Christ is not only our righteousness, but he is himself our holiness, our sanctification. And Bart's position unfolds from there. According to Bart, our holiness is every bit as alien to us as is our righteousness. And for the exact same reason. Because just as Jesus Christ is himself our righteousness, Jesus Christ is also himself our holiness. That is the central insight in Barth's alternative to the traditional position. And the first and most obvious implication that follows from that insight is that holiness is inseparable from Jesus Christ himself. Now, just to make sure you're clear on this, why? That's not a rhetorical question. Why is holiness inseparable from Jesus? Say it with confidence loudly. I heard a mumbling. It wasn't that what you said was wrong. It's that I didn't hear it. Because Jesus is our holiness. That's why holiness is inseparable from Christ. This is Bart's position. 
This connects with what Haley was saying about participation earlier this morning. I'm saying that just as we're holy, I'm sorry, I'm saying that we are holy just to the extent that we participate in Jesus Christ who is our holiness. Which means that holiness is not an effect that God causes in the believer that remains in the believer after God gives it. Holiness is something that God gives the believer without giving it away. Now, I realize that that's a cryptic way of putting it. Um, So let me put it differently. There is no creaturely holiness apart from God's act of giving us holiness. There's nothing that remains after the event. In other words, holiness is not a possession of ours that is left over after the Holy Spirit is operative in our lives. Bart will say that creaturely holiness is not a human given, but a divine giving. There, uh, this is all the same thought. I'm just trying to say it in a bunch of different ways to make it clear. There is no holiness in us, which is not at the same time a receiving of holiness from God. Or, um, again, connecting with what Haley said earlier today, if you want a different way of thinking about this, think about it like this. Creaturely holiness is not a noun. It's a verb. It's something we do. It is not an inherent predicate of the believer. It's the event in which believers, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are joined to Jesus Christ himself. And so the question obviously becomes, okay, well, how does that happen? What does that look like? What does it actually mean to be united to Jesus Christ? And after all that, Bart's answer is surprisingly simple. Believers are united to Jesus Christ and receive his holiness where and when they hear and where they trust, and where they obey Jesus Christ's call to discipleship. I will. Believers are united to Jesus Christ actively, and they receive his holiness where and when they hear and trust and obey Jesus Christ's call to discipleship. I think maybe four different people in various conversations that I've had since I've come here have mentioned the Barman Declaration to me. Think back to the Barman Declaration. Jesus Christ is the one word of God, and it's him who we listen to. He is the one voice of God that we listen to. We don't listen to other supposed words from God. What does it mean for you to be holy? It means that you live according to the truth. And the truth is that you do not belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus. For you to be holy 
means for you to respond in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ's call to discipleship. Holiness is simply practicing what Bonhoeffer calls, and I mentioned this a couple of times ago, simple obedience. Jesus Christ commands, and you obey. Simple. That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) Extremely hard, but simple in terms of its ordering. Call and response. And again, it's really important to see that this does not rule out growth or progress in the Christian life. It does, however, redefine it. On Bart's model, you account for progress in the Christian life not in terms of quantity of virtue that builds up within you, like liquid in a container, but rather in terms of the frequency of obedience. Not by pointing to the intrinsic growth of the believer, but by pointing to the believer's active obedience. What I'm saying is that to become a more mature Christian simply means to become obedient more often. It is not, it is not becoming more self-sufficient or more spiritually competent. It's becoming more and more dependent on God. So if you want to categorize people into saints, um, if ever there was one, it's John Calvin. I mean, I usually say that and people are like, no, maybe in this room. (laughs) Y'all be like, okay, we can go a little bit with that. It's why people like Calvin will say that progress in the Christian life translates into an increasing awareness of one's own sinfulness. Which means that if what I'm saying is basically correct, and if the Christian life is a life lived in moment-to-moment dependence on God, then the Christian life is a life of unceasing prayer. To be a Christian and to pray is the same thing. I don't, I think we're often tricked into thinking that being a Christian is largely about, um, often, about agreeing with certain doctrines. I don't care what doctrine you agree with, what theological thought you accept. If you are not praying, I don't mean thinking about praying, I mean actually praying then you're not living a Christian life. I don't say that to like make you feel guilty. And I sure as hell don't say that because I'm such a great prayer, like a pro at it. I'm just saying that as I read the New Testament and as I think about the Christian life, to be a Christian and to pray is more or less the same thing. Kierkegaard put it best. Prayer is like breathing. If you don't breathe, you die. If you don't pray, you die spiritually. It would be impossible, I think, to quote too often the last words that Luther ever wrote in German. I'm sure you've heard this before, and I do not care about repeating it. Um, It's such a valuable thing to know and to remember and to internalize. His last written words in German were, we are all beggars 
That is true. We are all beggars. That is true. And the thing to see is that that's the great Luther at the end of the Christian life, not just at the beginning. We are as utterly dependent on God's grace at the end of our lives as we were at the beginning of our lives. Like manna, this all, manna is great in all sorts of ways, but it has to be the metaphor in scripture that it's possible to create more analogies with than any other thing that happens in the Bible. But like manna, holiness is not something that believers can store up for themselves. Holiness, Bart is trying to teach us, is something that people receive again and again new each morning. In fact, in each moment. There are, Karl Barth, never um, tired of saying, no, there are no such thing as experts in the Christian faith. There are only ever beginners. And the rhythm of the Christian life, he would say over and over, is to begin again at the beginning. And if your goal is to become a stronger Christian, then you've got the wrong goal, in my opinion. Your goal, rather, ought to become a person who tries as much as possible to be transparent to the work of the Holy Spirit so that you can engage in what Bonhoeffer calls simple obedience. I think many of us have these grand ideas for what we want to accomplish with our lives these extraordinary visions of what we think a great person is. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. It's hard just to be a decent human being. So maybe we should concentrate on a, a little bit simpler things, like trying to be faithful in small things, trying to obey Jesus Christ's call in the everyday moments of our lives, and maybe then we'll become the kind of people who have a little bit more of a wider impact. Okay, that's all I, I want to say. I don't know. Are we out of time? No, we got plenty of time. Golfers. I mean, what? Golfers. Golfers. I didn't. What? Oh, the golfers are leaving? It gets better. <laughs> what? Golf? <laughs> no, Haley and I were talking about this earlier. This is a comment sure to cause some of you to hate me. I'm quite sure that golf is satanic. Um, <laughs> I have, I have a fully developed argument for that, which I can share with you at some point, but yeah. I'm, I'm curious to hear, hear some thoughts from you on the two phrases I hear in the church, spiritual formation and faith formation, and how that plays with yeah. what you're sharing. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, okay, how, how do I start addressing this? It seems to me that Protestants these days are losing their nerve. Um, there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. But one of the effects that this is having is that more and more Protestants are looking towards Roman Catholicism for models of what it means to live a Christian life, to 
grow spiritually. Um, and one of the things that, as we all know, the great Thomas Aquinas um, was deeply informed by Aristotle's understanding of virtue understood as a habit, an intrinsic disposition towards good acts. Protestants, people like Jamie Smith, who I was talking about earlier, um, have latched on to this way of thinking and now are talking about the Christian life as a way of being habituated into virtue. Haley's teacher, N.T. Wright, he, he just wrote a book about this called After You Believe. I mean, Protestants are following Catholics here. Um, there is a great deal of helpful insight. I, I, I don't stand up here as someone who denigrates that way of thinking. But I, I forget who I was talking to uh, earlier, someone about um, this great teacher at Princeton Seminary named Jim Loader. He's a psychology teacher. And I would take his classes and have no idea what he was talking about until he said something absolutely brilliant and it would blow my mind. And if any of you have taken one of his classes, you know that Jim Loader loved Kierkegaard. And he would constantly say, socialization is not the same thing as transformation. So it is possible to be socialized into a pattern of life or socialized into a culture or socialized into a way of being, but that is not necessarily identical to obedience. That's what I was trying to say last time when I said, maybe we should expect, rather than the Christian life being a life of settled dispositions and habits, maybe like Kierkegaard and like Bart and like Luther, we ought to begin to envision it as a series of more explosive encounters. And I actually think that that way of thinking is more faithful to the Jesus presented in the Gospels. That's a long answer to your question, but formation, I would say, is at least needs to be distinguished from socialization, which can become part of it, but it is better conceived, I think, as a process that you can't predict, as a process that you can't just include people in automatically, um, but one, a process that does not become second nature to people over time, but one where we learn to become more open to hearing God's call and responding to it. So progress, I would think of as uh, something like the capacity to listen and be more transparent to the voice of God. I don't even like the word capacity, but I don't know a better word to use for it from that. Luther said, and I, I, I just love this line, a Christian only needs one set of organs, ears, to hear the word of God so that they can then respond to it in obedience. Um, it, it strikes me you give a great antidote to um, kind of the celebrity status of Jesus, you know, because it's easy for us to say, well, when talking about imitation of Christ, well, we can never be like Christ because he's the son of God. Mm -hmm. But if we look at how he lived his life, I only do what my I see my father doing. My food is to do the will of the yeah. Father. That it's his model is not perfection, but 
moment by moment obedience. So I, I like yeah, that. Yeah, or you can, because as you know, he calls us to be perfect. Um, that way of concept, like the word perfect is not self-evident. Its meaning is not self-evident. And I would interpret it along the lines like you're interpreting it, which is to say perfection is something like moment to moment. Um, well, I would, may, I would maybe even go as far as to say, and this connects to my previous lecture, where and when our existence, our actual lives, matches up with and coheres with our essence in Christ, then there's nothing left to be said about us than that we're holy, perfect. It's just that that existence is variable. It comes and goes. So Luther and Bart will both say that Christians are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just and sinners. And Bart goes one further and says, Christians are simultaneously holy and sinners. In other words, um, our lives are never so far down the road that we're not threatened by massive sins. This, I, I know you know this, but this is something that you need to train your congregations to remember because I think a lot of people don't know this. Anyone at any moment is susceptible to falling into massive sin. It is not the same for everyone, not the same sin, but some sin is right on the doorstep of every human being. And I just find myself increasingly encountering people who are leaving the Christian faith because someone they look up to fell into some spectacular sin. And part of the reason that they instinctually make that move is because of how we train them to think about elite Christians. Yeah. Little bit of confusion. It's good. Yeah. Holiness. Uh, my question is, is holiness a thing or is it a way? And I kind of hear you talking about it in both those, that in some ways you're saying... It's really not a thing. It's not a noun. Um, it's not something that fills you, like the cup image, you know. It's more of a way of living, a way of obedience. But on the other hand, I hear a little bit coming through about becoming holy. You know, I, I think I just heard you say something like that. So um, it, is it a little bit of both? No. Or is it primarily a way, as it's, I kind of hear you It's only the former. So if I, am, I, I can talk about becoming holy in part because I prefer the word becoming to have become holy. So this is only ever a process, a movement, um, like I said, a verb. It's never something static that remains a thing that the believer just has because they're holy. That's my... Sort of a way. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to offer this as a comment and not pretend it's a question, but for me, the, in addition to manna, the metaphor the Bible offers us frequently is marriage, and 10 years into being married to my wife, I'm just as capable of being an ass now as I was the day I met her. But the goal is not 
becoming progressively better, it's connecting and having moments of union and participation with her in partnership. Yeah. So, like for me, that was a really helpful way of thinking about that's the, that's the holiness is connection to the divine. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Adam, um, uh, I remember years ago reading the commentary uh, that uh, Karl Barth wrote on Romans. And underlining this, he, he said that uh, the apostles are in that place not for something they are, but for something they are not. And what strikes me in the New Testament is how the 11 apostles and then Paul and Timely Born, they all get their wings uh, as apostles through failure. You know, they need, they, they fall to their knees uh, in their denial and their, and Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners and it's part of his testimony as he witnesses. But that always, you know, in, in my 40 years as a pastor, I have never come to a place where I, I've talked about my failures to people, but I've never come to a place where Paul was, where he would say, be imitators of me. Mm -hmm. I was too intimidated. Mm -hmm. I didn't mm -hmm. feel like I could ever say that. Yeah. How do you understand that? Yeah, it's, a, it's such a good counterpoint to the point that I'm making. Um, and I want to make this strong point in part because it's just not made, or at least certainly not made very often. Um, there are, I would say, there is a relative place for imitation of people that we are inspired by, for sure. I guess I would just say there also needs to be a consciousness that those people are altogether fallible like we are. That's what I would say. To your point about failure, I hope all of you are reading Simone Weil. I learned uh, about who she is at uh, Princeton Seminary from Diogenes Allen. Simone Weil has this extraordinary line where she says that Peter's denial was his, his denial of Jesus did not begin when he was asked, hey, aren't you the one who follows him? It was when Peter said to Jesus, I will never leave you. Um, I think that's just such a brilliant insight. And I also, um, I think we have to go, it's time to go to lunch or whatever, but uh, I just want to make one point. I, I am not advocating a kind of false broadcasting of how terrible we are as people. Um, that, that's just hokey and awful. Don't do that. I'm, I'm advocating a kind of modest, realistic evaluation of who human beings actually are, like who we know ourselves to be. And, and this is the last thing I'll say, there's something about the way that we can talk about our weaknesses, talk about our limitations, talk about how far we have to go, which is really an attempt to persuade people otherwise. And the really interesting thing about this is that when other people are doing this, you know, like humble bragging, we can always see what they're doing. But when we do it, we don't think anybody can see what we're doing, but they can. So don't do it. Okay, I hope you enjoy lunch. <laughs>